Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Live from Leonardo's Restaurant in Fair Verona, it's the Friars Club Roast of Friar Lawrence. Tonight's roasters include Benvolio, Buddy Hackett, Phyllis Diller, Lord and Lady Montague, Chuck Scarborough, J.P. Morgan, Prince Escalus, and tonight's Roastmaster, Verona's favorite comedian, Shecky Antonio. Thank you, thank you. Wow, look at this room. I haven't seen this much red velvet since Charles Colonoscopy. <laughs> but seriously, you know why we're all here tonight. Before the gray-eyed morn smiles on the frowning night, checkering the eastern clouds with streaks of light, we're going to roast our good friend here, Friar Lawrence. Larry, you're so good with plants, why couldn't you be happy playing with the Venus flytrap like the rest of the monks? Ah, <laughs> oh, we kid, because we love you, Larry. You did for marriage counseling what the Titanic did for the cruise industry. <laughs> Is he laughing? Somebody see if Larry's laughing. Have a great night, everybody. Try the veal, but uh, not after Larry seasons it. <laughs> now, I want to introduce a very funny lady. She's just back from three sold-out weeks at the Happy Dagger Comedy Club. A big hand for Miss Phyllis Diller. Thanks a lot, Shecky. And must thou stand by, too, and suffer every knave to use me at his pleasure? Honey, that hasn't happened since the Romulus administration. Enough about me. Larry, you look great. And by great, I mean better than somebody who took your advice. <laughs> I first met this crazy friar when I was doing a survey on lovemaking. I asked him, do you prefer a man, a woman, or none? He said, none, and sometimes two of them if it's a long weekend. <laughs> we kid, Larry. Seriously, don't beat yourself up over Romeo and Juliet. There are so many people who will do it for you. <laughs> and speaking of that, let's bring up one of Romeo's kinsmen, the one everybody forgets, Mr. Exposition, Ben Volio. I go to see my girlfriend. I say, hey, let's get married. She says, over my dead body. I say, Larry can arrange that. <laughs> I ask Larry, what's going on with my cousin and Juliet? And Larry says... I got some good news, and I got some bad news. So I say, what's the good news? And he says, eh, you ain't got to buy no wedding present. Thanks, Benny. Our revels are almost ended. The feckled darkness like a drunkard reels. That either means it's getting late, or it's time for Dean Martin's set. <laughs> Larry, I love you. But before we close, I just want to say, when Romeo asked you if you could marry a Capulet, you said, that dame is poison. <laughs> How could he know you meant it literally? <laughs> it's time for another show. And now, the guy who led the couple's retreat for Othello and Desdemona, Colin McEnroe. Welcome to our show about Romeo and Juliet. Um, joining us in studio, we wouldn't do a Shakespeare show without Humphrey Tonkin, professor of English and president emeritus of the University of Hartford. Darko Treznik is currently directing Romeo and Juliet. He's the artistic director at Hartford Stage, uh, and uh, his production of Romeo and Juliet is currently up and running. Join us, joining us also by phone is Tina Packer, the founding artistic director of Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts, and the author of Women of Will, Following the Feminine in Shakespeare's Plays. We'll also... 
mention a little bit later on what's coming up there in Linux uh, this summer, uh, a little bit about Merchant of Venice. But today we're mainly talking about Romeo and Juliet. Darko, I'm going to begin with you. Uh, before we uh, came on the air here, you were talking to Humphrey, and you said Romeo and Juliet is hard as hell. What's, what's, what's hard about Romeo and Juliet? Um, I refer to it as the Carmen of Shakespeare plays, uh, the opera Carmen, you have these extraordinary arias that are really famous, and then there's the rest. Romeo and Juliet has these extraordinary scenes and monologues, and they're justly famous, and then there's the rest. So I think it's uh, it's it's an inspired, um, rapturous work of a young playwright still learning his craft. So I think that things that he figures out later, you know... Um, in his later tragedies are not necessarily all there. So I think that there are extraordinary scenes, but I'm not staging scenes. I'm doing the whole production, and you have to deal with the totality of the play. Um, and Humphrey, I think we can stipulate, maybe we can stipulate, that one's reaction to Romeo and Juliet changes over time and changes with each production. Each time the jewel is placed in a new setting, you see it a little bit differently. Uh, you haven't you just flown in from London. You haven't seen Darko's production yet. But how is Romeo and Juliet looking to you these days? What kind of play is it for you? <laughs> um, yeah, that's uh, that's deeply personal, that question, Colin. Because, I specialize uh, in that. Yes, indeed. Because... Um, because the reality, of course, is that, that it is a play about a particular notion of young love mm-hmm. under circumstances in which nothing holds together. Um, of course, one of Darko's problems, I'm sure, is that this play is called Romeo and Juliet. Uh, where is the center of the play and how do you find the center of the play? Today, when I look back at Romeo and Juliet, looking at it from a very different perspective, um, it seems to me to be above all a a play about about how things how things are constantly falling apart even as we are trying desperately to bring them together we manage to bring them together mostly through wishful thinking and poetry but the world actually is more complicated than that so, uh, Tina Packer, in your book, you you talk about this play as kind of a pivotal moment for Shakespeare when he learns something that he does not seem to have known before, something about the union of souls, something about the way sexual passion uh, and, and, and identity uh, or maybe even loss of identity combined. But I'm sure you can do a much better job of articulating that sentiment <laughs> than I just did. Yeah, uh, I, I do think it's a turning point in Shakespeare's writing life, uh, which already Humphrey and Darker have mentioned, but I think it's more than that. Um, I, I do think he says Romeo and Juliet, which means that Juliet has equal billing with Romeo, and so he's really pointing to what is the relationship between these two. And I think uh, Shakespeare, and I think it was personal for him, I think he suddenly realized that women as as second-class citizens, this was not true. They were not second-class citizens. They did have souls. You know, there's a lot of argument about whether women had souls or whether they belonged to their husbands or their fathers. But they did have souls and that, in fact, they were just as much human beings as anybody, uh, as any man. And, and I think he also realized that men and women coming together on the level that they do in Romeo and Juliet, and it's the first time they come together in this little... Some, Suffolk and Margaret in Henry VI maybe a bit, you know, there were, there were glimpses of it before, but this is a man and a woman coming together with such depth, 
such passion that it, it transforms their sexual passion for each other into a spiritual passion as well. And those two things together, the sexual and the spiritual, can transform the world. And they do transform the world. They just don't survive in this world. They survive in the next world. But it, 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 for me, it's absolutely a lodestar in Shakespeare's writing life. Um, it's uh, actually I'm, Tina. I'm going to stay with you for just a second on this. Although I want to hear from uh, all the guests, but um, authorial uh, intention aside, I would argue that it's not merely Romeo and Juliet being equals, but that Juliet is something really more than Romeo. Well, Humphrey's agreeing yeah. with me, which well, is, there doesn't happen yeah, that often. Well, let me just let me just put a, a specific button on this. All right, um, in Verona, in Fair Verona these days, as well, you know, they've had to open up a civic office to deal with the mail that Juliet gets. Yes. They have to have volunteer secretaries to write back to yes. Juliet. Romeo does not get any mail, yes. which, which tells me that people are reacting in, in a different way to her. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right because she is such an icon. I mean, Romeo belongs to all the passionate young men that have come before him. How he's different is that he holds to Juliet, absolutely holds to her through thick and thin. And he's been rather, you know, he's had Rosaline before and God knows who before that. So it's not like his testosterone hasn't been going slightly berserk and he's been running around. But once he finds his soulmate, he absolutely hones to her. But it is Juliet who has the intricacy of thinking. It is Juliet that can actually make philosophical statements about love and the naming of things. It's Juliet that has the perspective on life, which, which wins our hearts. And you think, my God, not only is she courageous, but she's deeply intelligent. And so it opens up the path for women to be deeply intelligent. You know, it's not that Kate in Taming the Shrew isn't intelligent. It's just in the end, she has to negotiate her final speech, you know, and oh, Petruchio's my boss and I'll acquiesce to him. And every actor that ever plays it thinks, oh, how can, I, how can I bury this in some kind of way? But not with Juliet. She goes right into her death in courage and love and a, a different level of love. So, you know, I write letters to her as well. I think, go girl, you know, if she can do that, I can do that. Well, not exactly that. So, Humphrey Duncan, uh, we had just this amazing moment where you were nodding in agreement with something I was saying that's never happened before in 20 years. Uh, so uh, what was resonating with you? Well, of course, what I was thinking of is, the, of, of course, the very end of the play. After all, Tina, the last lines are, never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. Um, it is very much Juliet's play. And um, and indeed, at a but, certain but it's point, Juliet takes over. Sure, that that's a view that takes over in the Victorian era, because after Shakespeare passed away, the play was rewritten extensively, sometimes given a happy ending. And then for a long time, Romeo was thought to be a superior role. And then for some reason, the Victorian men were not really equipped to play Romeo. And that viewed that Juliet is the predominant role, which still lasts but that didn't start till the Victorian era. But Durko, she has less lines than Romeo does, and she has sure. a... Well, I'm not saying I'm disagreeing. I'm just that. saying his, historically that view is actually only since the 1800s. So, 
Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, one reason, Darko, one reason I think that people write to Juliet and Verona under this day is that they feel as though nobody in their own lives understands them, right? Why else would you write to a fictional character mm-hmm. who, you know, would have been dead for hundreds of years? Because nobody in your own life understands you. And that's, to me, very much the feeling I have about Juliet, that far more than Romeo, who's got his bro culture, which he can either reject or, or, or accept, and he ultimately sort of climbs over the wall and mm-hmm. gets away from it. But she has, she has no support. I I feel so the isolation of Juliet is part of this tragedy. I think um, for me the key scene, and uh, it's one of the most magnificent scenes in all of Shakespeare, is after their one night of love. That's all they get, one night of love. And we don't see that. We see the aftermath. But there's a moment he is banished. Uh, The mother comes in, and at one point in that scene she says, I would the fool were married to her grave. And the father says, hang, beg, starve, die in the street. And then the nurse, you know, tells her to marry Paris and perjure her soul. And uh, that scene, you know, he strips away all comfort from her. Mm -hmm. And because I think he's interested in the extraordinary maturation of this not quite 14-year-old girl. And from that point on, there are passages where she sounds to me like Lady Macbeth. Towards mm-hmm. the end, she sounds like Cleopatra. I think there's a pathway to all of the great women roles that he writes after that. But that scene to me is the key because once he's banished, we don't see him for a while. We see what she has to deal with when the entire universe turns upside down. You know, Gina Packer, young men of this uh, particular gen- of our generation, uh, of our time right now, have a particularly vulgar uh, thing that they will say to one another, and I apologize for its coarseness in advance, but but they have a little saying, not all young men, thank God, but they say bros before hoes, by which they mean that y- your male friends are more important to you than any woman ever could be. And it seems in your book, uh, you treat of this, uh, I think, very specifically, that one of the things that Romeo ultimately has to do is physically climb over that wall, get away from this group of, of boys or young yeah. men who see things differently from the new choice that he's making. Yeah, and I, I have to say that's a kind of time-honored sentiment, bros before hoes. Uh, you know, and one of the huge things Shakespeare did was start seeing that actually, no, women and men together can do this incredible thing. But it, it's true, Mercutio, who practically always runs away from with the play, you know, is because he's so raunchy, he's so post-traumatic stress, if I can put it like that. He's He's, he's so... Um, it lives violently in his own world that um, that he's very attractive to young men. And, and uh, um, Humphrey's right, he literally has to, or was it you, Colin, who said he literally has to climb over the wall, the wall of enlightenment, to, to actually go to Juliet, who is the east and the sun, you know. So... So, um, and, and the raunchy scenes with the nurse and, and the boys, all mm. that kind of lower sexuality, if I can call it that. Uh, Romeo has to abandon. It's not that he abandons his sexuality. It's just that he puts his spirituality alongside his sexuality. And then their, their love can be transformative. It can be transformative of the whole society. I know they don't survive, but the idea that they're not going to fight anymore 
in Verona comes out of that. And I think it's, it's Shakespeare signaling his late plays, not just Cleopatra and Rosalind and Beatrice, but his late plays where basically Shakespeare says, guys, you've got to follow the women, else we're all lost. Right, and I, I want to save that for a little bit later in the conversation. We're going to deal a lot with Mercutio in our second act, and in our third act, I want to talk about the late <laughs> plays. But I'm getting a body language from Humphrey that he's got a take on this. Well, just simply that... that you describe it as climbing over the wall, which, of course, he literally does. But he also climbs back over the wall, mm. which is so he goes back to the bro culture that you were talking about earlier, which, of course, is the is the heart of the tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the, the immediate cause of um, of all the disaster that follows. Yeah. Right. That's what I, you know, what I find interesting about the play, I think maybe I'll write the, a book practical in Shakespeare. Romeo and Juliet have one extended scene together. That's it. It's it's called that, but uh, they have the beautiful balcony scene, but they're not in physical proximity. There's a barrier between that. Also, by Be- the way, in the 1935 movie, the sure. balcony actually moves up and down, up and down. from, from yeah. one yeah. take to another. To another. Mm. Well, what's what's interesting is you know before that they share a sonnet, then after the balcony scene they have a brief wedding scene, and then in the second half you know we see the aftermath of their lovemaking, and it's a pretty brief scene. It's like two pages. So what's interesting about the play is that, you know, I think any successful production, you have to deal with the fact that she's going to spend more time with the nurse and her family than with Romeo, and he's going to spend so much time with his friends and the friar. So it's essential that all of the roles and all of the relationships are as clear and as passionately carved and conceptually that one has a really clear take. Doctor, that's absolutely true, but what you get in the balcony scene, which indelibly marks itself on the audience, is all her profound thinking. You know, my bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love as deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite. I mean, that is an enormous thought, and the young actor playing Juliet has to be able to tap into that within herself. You know, what's in a name, arose by any other word would smell as sweet. That's a profound thought. And if the, the actor has to come up to the profundity of those thoughts, and then the balcony scene remains indelibly etched on the audience's memory so that if, they, if it is, then it's, it's sure. put in the context of everything that happens mm. afterwards. In other words, the balcony scene is always there, if I can put it like that. All right. I I may want to come back to that at some point, but uh, we have to take a little break, bring the house lights up, uh, and we'll be back with our second act after this. We're back. We're talking about Romeo and Juliet. It is up and running at the Hartford Stage Company right now. Uh, it's a, a fabulous, as usual, fabulous looking production by Darko Treznik. And we'll talk a little bit uh, in this particular segment, too, about some of the specific uh, sort of choices of venue and choices of time uh, that Darko has made. But I, I want to see some other things as well. Darko's here with us, as is Humphrey Tonkin, uh, our official uh, Shakespeare scholar of the Colin McEnroe Show, professor of English uh, and president emeritus of the University of Hartford, Tina Packers 
with us, the founding artistic director of Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. My thinking about uh, Romeo and Juliet right now is heavily shaped by Woman of Will, her book uh, about following the feminine in Shakespeare's plays. Humphrey, is it fair to say, I mean, in a way, you could sort of say this about almost any Shakespeare play, that he kind of wipes the slate clean and starts all over again. But I was trying to think of a play that's anything like Romeo and Juliet, and I couldn't really think of a Shakespeare play, that in some ways this really is kind of sui generis for him. I think that's probably true in lots of ways. After all, it's a play that tells us its entire plot at the very beginning, mm -hmm. which is uh, not the usual routine. And um, and yes, I think I think essentially what Shakespeare is doing is coming at an idea, the idea of romantic love, and um, and starting from the beginning with it. The most interesting parallels, I think, with the play are in fact those with. A Midsummer Night's Dream, which, were, which was written at about the same time. And there's all kinds of ways in which one can look at the, the connections between the two plays. But yes, I agree entirely with Tina that this is very much a, a, a fresh start, that Shakespeare himself has discovered some truths that, um, that are not apparent in, in the earlier plays. You know, Tina, in, in the book, one thing that you, one point that you make that I found uh, fascinating because I'd never thought about it before is what it's like for the actor playing Juliet to speak those lines night after night. That ultimately, you say in the book that 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 notion of love being infinite, uh, of love being boundless, uh, of giving love just creates greater capacity to give, become, can become very true for the person speaking those lines. We don't think about that very much. We think about the author and the audience, but not what's going on with the person playing the role. Yes, no, and I, I try to tap into it myself when I want to kill everybody. <laughs> 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 I, w I would actually love to do Romeo and Juliet and All's Well That Ends Well back to back mm -hmm. because there's such different views of love. And Helena is probably my favorite of all of Shakespeare's women characters. But uh, but that is a thesis play. Love stretched mm -hmm. to its cruelest dimension. Is it still a he healthy force in our lives? It would be really interesting to do them together. Darko, to that point, you've ne have you never directed Romeo and Juliet no, before? And, no, and I've was waited it, 25 why wait? productions. Why the wait? You know what? I think I was born old and, you know, when I was a teenager, people my own age were not remotely interesting to me. So um, <laughs> I had to get back to it later in life and think about it. And then the other thing is, you know, if you're gay, you know, it, you know, it's uh, you rarely experience those feelings that Romeo and Juliet think about. You know, we are oppressed. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so you don't have access to, you know, to that necessarily. I didn't, you know, so... So, you know, I, I got to Darko, think about it at this stage in my life. Darko, don't, I mean, I, I actually think Shakespeare is relatively gender neutral on this. I think it's the capacity to love that, it, that he's talking about. And mm -hmm. so I would say to you, but once you've got through all that stuff, isn't it possible now, say, for you to love on that, on that kind of level that was not so before? You know. well, well, of course, you know, but, you know, that goes without saying. It's just, uh, you know, the other thing about it is it's a famous play. Technically, it's an incredibly complicated play. I think, you know, two plays when directors say that they're going to start directing Shakespeare, I always feel dread when they say they're going to start with either Romeo and Juliet or Macbeth <laughs> because <laughs> one should wait for yeah. those two in King Lear. And, you know, to me, Romeo and Juliet, it's incredibly complex. You know, you have to get the casting of the two leads right, the two title characters, and then the entire world of Capulets and Montagues. 
the mysterious feud, which is to me one of the most interesting things about the play. Shakespeare, who is never at a loss for words, simply does not explain the source or the nature of the feud. And I think it's intentional because it's as banal as any feud in the world fought right now, you know. Um, so. I want to talk a little bit about Mercutio. I, I promised we'd get back to him yeah. a little bit here in our second act. And so, um, Tina, you're going to love Darko's Mercutio. He's exactly the kind of um, entertaining punk and low life that uh, oh, that you good, that you good, describe. Good, good. But 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 Humphrey, this is also something that I don't I can't think of another instance where Shakespeare has created such an entertaining character, you know, obviously the most entertaining character in the play, the most, the, 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 the greatest vehicle for audience engagement, and then just slash him right out long before the end of the play. This is an unusual choice. You're dead right. And, of course, Mercutio, as Tina was suggesting, almost takes over a large part of the, of the first act with that astounding speech. And, of course, everybody, including Mercutio, says, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> um, the um, I, I think one thing that 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 we need to keep in mind is that this is a very seductive play in the sense that we can actually find ourselves believing in the love that Romeo and Juliet have and the possibility of that love. But the reality is that such love must be destroyed. That's all that can happen to it. And that tension between the between the hatred and the love. Um, that hatred that, that Darko, you described as banal, I'm not sure about that. I think we mm. simply don't know what it's about. There's another play out there that could have been written sure. from that point sure. of view. No, I'm just saying uh, that he does not – he's not interested in explaining the nature of the feud. That's, that's true. That's, <laughs> and that's very true. intentional. Yes. But we – this is a play about longing. Mm. It's a play about things that we can't have and we would love to have, um, which I think is really, really important. So Mercutio, in fact, and his sort of his, his wildness there in the in the first act turns out in its very beauty, because that is a beautiful speech, mm-hmm. in its very beauty to be unattainable. Of course, Mercutio is destroyed. And mm-hmm. he's the person who, in many respects, is the most likable at a certain stage in the in the play. This- I think I think and this is a subjective view, but I think there is no place for great art and great love in Verona that Shakespeare paints, in the Verona of Capulets and the Montagues, that, you know, you look at a mind that can coin Queen Mab's speech is a mind of a genius, but the boy is spending his time hanging out around the the square, hanging out on the streets. There seems to be no purpose for an extraordinary mind like Mercutio in this world. Tina, we don't know that much, I think, about Shakespeare's acting life, but do we not know or guess anyway that he played Mercutio? Yeah, that's what we think, you know. And and if he did, he wrote himself the best role you could ever imagine. You know, it's that it's that it's that cynical view of violence, if I if I could put it like that, which you see in Troilus and Cressida again and again about violence is so seductive and it is so horrendous, you know, and we're all stuck there in this world of violence. I mean, we are today worse than we were in the Renaissance, you know. I mean, I, you, I can't, you know, you look what's happening in Syria and Turkey and, I mean, everywhere. It just is it's overwhelming, our desire to indulge in violence. Well, I, I mean, mwah. anyway... I feel that Shakespeare knew deeply what that attraction to violence was, which is probably why he had a wonderful time playing the role. And, of course, Tina, you know, the first reference to sex 
is in that first scene, and it's um, and it's a violent yes, reference sorry. to sex. The maidenheads, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, that's an important moment, the way it's staged in the play. It's an essential moment because uh, a young woman is trying to cross the town square, and in the production, the guys go after her, and it's just an unnamed young woman, but... And then there's a sense, you know, the first few lines are often played benign before Juliet enters. But the nurse, the way that it scans, there's a neurosis about where is Juliet because they can't find her for the first few seconds. You know, and to me, it's actually a scary moment. mm -hmm. Like, where is this child? I think it tells you everything about having a teenage daughter. Yeah. So, and Darko, while we're on this, I want to ask you a little bit about the specifics of of this production. Uh, You've used um, references to Italian neorealisms, something I know very little about. Um, And on top of that, uh, Juliet is black. um, Her father is black. Tell us about those choices, uh, what it is you're doing with the set. Actually, I'm not going to talk about race because we never talked about it in the casting of it. I just cast the best actors who were available and people are sort of starting to choose to read into it Mm. things. And, you know, people, you know, in the press have wanted to talk with Juliet about being a black Juliet. Nobody has actually asked Chris about playing a white Romeo. (laughs) And I'm really troubled these days that that is still the case because I only cast the actors for excellence and I want my cast to know all of them that they were cast simply because they were the best because the notion that white people are cast, you know, because of talent and that other actors are cast because of a directorial concept Mm -hmm. is profoundly, you know, I don't want my cast to think that. I just cast them because I love them and believe in their technique and talent. So I'm a little bit passionate about that. Uh, Um, And we're glad you are. Let's talk about uh, 1948-ish in Italy. There's a lot of gravel on the stage. Sure, sure. In addition to to text, um, I will say that, you know, I have a company... Um, And they're all over the world of wonderful actors after 25 Shakespeare plays that I worked with. And one of the images I saw in my mind is, um, you know, Lady Capulet when she says, Tybalt, Tybalt, oh cousin, oh my brother's child, um, when she grieves over his – when she grieves over his corpse. um, It's a thunderbolt of a moment and it comes out of nowhere because uh, we haven't seen her relationship with Tybalt. And I saw this actress, Celeste Chula, and I instantly knew that um, I saw her and Anna Magnani in the same breath, and I instantly, the concept, everything came together based on Italian neorealism. But it started with, the inspiration was Celeste, the mm. actress who plays Lady Capulet. She's a great Lady Capulet. I love her smoking, too. It's like, it's, uh, there's so yeah, much and she drinks beer, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, and... Um, one of the things that we're looking at here, and this kind of goes back to Humphrey's point, how I want to maybe end this part of our conversation, and then we'll be back for Act 3. Humphrey's point, if I understand you, Humphrey, is that this incredible love has to die, has to be destroyed, because the world is broken. The world's a broken place. You know, whether we're in Syria or Turkey or uh, Verona or broken Britain or, or wherever, wherever we are, the, the world won't allow this. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Yes. At one and the same time, this kind of love is um, offers salvation, mm. but it also offers destruction. Those two things go together. Yeah. And we can't love without death, mm. to put it in its simplest terms. I'm thinking, you know, what, what Tina said, you know, sexual and spiritual component, and I so agree, and I would add in the world of Romeo and Juliet that their love is the most moral aspect of the universe. Yeah. 
because everybody else, you know, the older generation, you know, when a push comes to shove, they say horrendous things. At best, they can't communicate with their kids. Friar abandons Juliet in the tomb. The nurse changes her mind about the marriage to Paris. So there's something about their love. I think it's it's moral in addition to everything else we've said. So, Tina, this is one of the fundamental questions that I think a person might have watching Romeo and Juliet is, are Romeo and Juliet unfortunate enough to have been born into this particular environment, which is encapsulated by this family feud, but also by a Verona that seems very savage and cruel uh, a lot of the time? Uh, could they have had a wonderful life if they'd been born uh, in Jamaica or, or, or you know, or some the south of France in, in some other era. Well, Colin, I think it, I think it's I I think the answer is while we actually live within a patriarchy, if I can say that, and I still think we live within a patriarchy. It's very difficult, uh, and 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 now there's there's all kinds of levels and dimensions to to the world in which we live on. In other words, that kind of driving desire for dominance now has gone into the our selling of arms around the the, the world, our, our kind of inviting wars. And I think that there's it's very difficult for any love which is transcendent to exist within that space because sooner or later the tests put to the lovers are going to be overwhelming in some way, shape, or form. And what you, what you can see is that that kind of love can transcend all kinds of barriers, economic barriers, race barriers, all those can transcend them all. But to sustain it over a period of time and keep on building and growing and renewing it, I think is very, very hard in the world unless you withdraw somewhat from the world. And of course, we, we can't do that because if we do that, then the forces which dictate our lives about who's got the money and who hasn't got the money, who's got the power and who hasn't got the power, become so overwhelming. And women still do not have equal power with men. And until they do, it's not going to come right because our, the, our way of thinking, and I include Actually, every artist I know thinks like this as well. You know, it, it's, a, it's to do with equality. It's to do with deep interest in how the other person lives. It's to do with actually communicating through a kind of vibration of love that you can start building an alternative world. So I feel as if what Shakespeare is doing is depicting Verona very clearly as this awful, ravaged, war-torn place in which people are very interested in holding on to their stuff. You know, this is mine, and that's not, that's not mine, so I'm going to try and get some of yours. And while we live in that world, I think love is a very, it's its only antidote, and it's a very difficult thing to hang on to. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. I want to mention that on Sunday, do we know the times for this, that you can have your own Humphrey Tonkin experience uh, with Romeo and Juliet? So you're doing a, a chalk talk of some kind there? Yeah, one of those after-performance things. After-performance right. things? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So that will be at the Sunday matinee of Romeo and Juliet yes. at Harper Stage? Yeah. Okay. I'll just quickly say one thing. This is my own little observation about which no one will probably care. But I actually thought it was very interesting that this is set where it's set. I mean, the Darko has made this choice. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of post-war uh, Italy. And there's a, sort of a sense. There's this movie I saw. I hope, I, I hope I'm describing this movie correctly a few years ago called Gloria set in post-Pinochet Chile. And all the way through this movie, there's this kind of under 
current of what kinds of choices did people make, you know, like in the battle days? Like, who were you a few years ago? And to me, that's sort of a subtext in the the Italian neorealism of your production. It's kind of like everybody's probably a little compromised, probably just to get through the 40s. People did a few things there. So that, that older generation is hardened that way, too. They did some things they're probably not all that proud of. And if there's a locus of hope at all, it would be that younger generation. All right. That's my speech. Uh, yes, gonna, well, yeah. and you know what's interesting mm-hmm. is that where we take the intermission, it's usually where it's taken. But the prince says mercy but murders, pardoning those that kill. And then later in the second half, the reference to references to watchmen and curfews. So it's almost the sense of anarchy giving way to a police state mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> during the course of the play. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I love – actually, I can't believe that uh, Tina used the expression holding on to the stuff mm-hmm. because – that came up in the rehearsal all the time. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I said, these men are trying to hold on to the stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, every day we said that. We're going to grab a quick break here and we'll come back for our third and final act here of our conversation about Romeo and Juliet. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and he appeared in the intro along with Jonathan McPants and Ray Hardman. The part of Bill Curry was played by Callista Flockhart. For show pages, articles, and video footage of a sword fight among members of the Here and Now staff, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose drops in on a brand new comedy that appeared out of nowhere. And now, back to Colin. We're having a conversation about Romeo and Juliet, which is playing right now at Hartford Stage. You can get your tickets at hartfordstage.org. You should probably try to go on Sunday when you can uh, hang out with Humphrey Tonkin afterwards and uh, have a conversation. He's here in studio with us. So is Darko Trajnik. This is his creation, uh, this production of Romeo and Juliet. Tina Packer uh, is joining us from Shakespeare and Company up in Lenox, Massachusetts. Uh, she's the author of Women of, w- Women of Will, Following the Feminine in Shakespeare's Plays. I hear there's a really interesting uh, Merchant of Venice going up there this summer. You should invite us up, and like we'll all come I am up. I'm going to invite you up. We'll do. We'll, we can I, have another of these conversations. Yeah, we'll do a radio show. We, we could actually do a radio show, the four of us, right on stage. So before I, we, I want to segue into a particular thing, but um, but Humphrey, during the break, you made an interesting point, which is Darko argues for wait as long as you can before you do Romeo and Juliet. But the reality is the opposite. Often in high school, it's like, well, let's do this. It's about young people, so let's do Romeo and Juliet. There are lots of people we can cast. Exactly, there are English teachers all over the country who are desperate to get their students interested, and they think Romeo and Juliet will do it. And what they tend to say is that with the love of Romeo and Juliet, we see a new maturity in in both Romeo and Juliet. I don't think that's so. And the notion that um, that the first, the earlier love, the Rosaline love, is 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 somehow or other immature. This is Romeo in love with the idea of love all this routine, I simply think is not correct. The fact is that, that Romeo and Juliet are immature when they fall in love, and their falling in love itself is in some sense immature. It's, it's we as an audience who, um, who cooperate with them in creating this, 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 this enormous structure of this amazing love only to find, of course, that it falls apart. But I don't know if Darker with you make anything of this particularly, but Rosaline gets invited to this 
party. Mm-hmm. The fact is that that Romeo has been out there causing trouble from the beginning. He keeps falling in love with multi, with um, Capulets all over the place. This is a guy who is going to cause trouble, and he does. But that's not the way it's taught in, in high school. That's not the way Ms. somebody or other teaches well, again, it. Well, again, going to the practical, I mean, to me, you know, I completely agree with you, this notion that he's not really in love with Rosaline. How do you direct an actor in a Shakespeare play to contradict the lines, <laughs> which are passionate. It's it's tough to work against the lines. It's a bad one-on-one idea in Shakespeare. But you know what I think is interesting is that Rosaline is painted in saintly, chaste terms. I almost have a vision of Tippi Hedren and Marnie. You know, there, there's, a, there's a kind of beautiful chill to her description. Juliet is very much a flesh-and-blood woman with most extraordinary spiritual thoughts, but also sexual thoughts, you know. So she's, you know, we know from one of her speeches that she's taken a good look at Romeo and she likes what she sees. So mm-hmm. so I think, um, you know, and Mercutio early on and when the characters are disapproving of his love for Rosaline, that's all they know. Nobody except the friar and the nurse knows about the love for Romeo and Juliet. Everybody else is shut out of that picture. So the notion that, you know, conceivably his friends, their observation might be more about Rosaline specifically than about nature of love versus sex. And, and Tina, this is something that you uh, deal with in the book, too, that, um, you know, really Juliet responds to Romeo without even really knowing his name or anything. And, and right. she's that whole pilgrim speech. Uh, the little sort of back and forth is a very interestingly sexually teasy kind of speech. Oh, it is. It's very teasy. Can I just say something about the schools thing, though, Colin? Mm-hmm. Just sure. because two things. One, we send Romeo and Juliet out on the road every four years. So with six actors, and we go all over the all over New England. So we know something about playing Romeo and Juliet in a in a barebard form to teenagers. And the thing that they really respond to is the value between the parents and the children and always that that I mean we have to be really careful about them not cheering on Capulet's denunciation of Juliet that there's something very tribal that breaks out at that point and so there's something that about the kids and, and we do it in the fall festival which is when the teenagers actually perform Shakespeare and come here and do it at Shakespeare and Company we have to be really careful that we don't go into um, uh, a kind of rabble-rousing um, uh, exuberance that starts taking over the audience as well as the, as the actors. So that was one thing I wanted to say. And then I've forgotten what the other thing well, is, and I'll answer your other question now. <laughs> all right. So uh, actually, I want to move a little bit also, a tiny bit away from Romeo and Juliet, and just sort of talk about the arc of Shakespeare. Yeah. And so, yeah. Humphrey, I'll start with you, Humphrey. At the end of his life, he starts writing plays where women aren't collateral damage, uh, where they um, are often alive <laughs> at the end of the play. They often have, uh, you know, whether it's Miranda or, or Marina in Pericles or all of those women in Winter's Tale, they often have very useful things to do in terms of pricking the pretension of the men around them. And it's kind of interesting because in his own life, things towards the end aren't working out that great. Uh, his will suggests that he and his wife don't really like each other that much. And and even his, he's got sort of capulet kinds of problems with, with uh, his daughter Judith, who's married kind of a bounder. Uh, and, and he's very unhappy about that as well. But he seems happy with women as he's writing those last plays. Well, of course, uh, what you're doing here, Colin, is what people are, in my opinion, all too... 
<laughs> also inclined to do, namely... I knew namely, I would get indicted namely, sooner or later here. <laughs> namely, reading all kinds of things about Shakespeare's life into, into the plays, which can get really dangerous towards the end there, I think, especially. But that aside, of course, the, the final plays, the romances, are about continuity, whereas uh, Romeo and Juliet is very much a play about discontinuity, sadly. I think what happens to Shakespeare as he gets older is that he begins to think about how enduring values can endure, um, how, in fact, they can get passed from generation to generation. So the late plays are all about generation and about the generation in every sense, by the way, and about continuity, whereas the earlier plays tend not to be in that same way. I'm going I'm to make sure, Tina, that you get the, the last word on this because I know you've got um, a yeah, lot no, to say no, about I'm, it. I'm, I'm bouncing up and down here. All right. <laughs> uh, but let me just go to Darko first on this. So, because yeah, I think the first Shakespeare play you directed in Hartford was The Tempest. And so Miranda, I, I think it's also about skill set, too. Miranda has a skill set that allows her to thrive in certain situations where maybe Juliet wouldn't have done so well, that there's, there are ways in which some of these women in the later plays are adept. Sure. And, you know, I haven't really related Miranda and Juliet. I haven't made that leap yet. But what I will say is, you know, that um, I've directed The Winter's Tale four times. Mm-hmm. And to me, in a sense, it's the most revisionist view of gender mm-hmm. in all of Shakespeare because Hermione, Paulina, and Perdita who I think is one of the most extraordinary women in Shakespeare. They're strong, rational. The men are erratic, <laughs> emotional. It's a very interesting play. I love, um, you know, I love The Winter's Tale. And, um, and I, you know, and the other one that I've directed recently is Coriolanus. Mm-hmm. And Volumnia, I think, is an extraordinary. So I'm attracted to all of those plays because of great women's roles. Yeah, and I wish, you know, I wish, and we were talking about this before the show started, mm-hmm. but, you know, it seems sometimes in American theater, if you're male and an actor of certain repute, you, you know, you get old, you get everybody's mounting productions of Lear. <laughs> You know, and right. what happens for actresses when they get older? Why aren't we, you know, why aren't theaters mounting they more productions? Women of will, well, yes, I know. Women that, of will. <laughs> I know. I know that that's, well, you well, know, and I know that that's why a friend of mine, Kate Forbes, she's putting together all the Margaret plays, mm. you know, and it's essential. But um, Volumnia is certainly a woman of will. Some of, some of her impulses are a little bit strange, though. Anyway, that's a that's a show for another day. So, yeah. um, so Tina Packer, you are bun- bouncing up and down there, no doubt. This is so much the meat. Uh, of your book. So yes. so make what you will of what we've said so far. Well, well I, I have to say that I think Shakespeare, I, I totally agree with what Darko was just talking about, uh, but Shakespeare goes on a real journey with his women. So after the Juliet, you know, the, and, and Midsummer Night's Dream in a com- comic fashion, after that, the women become more and more the truth-tellers in the plays. So your Desdemona or your Ophelia, they're, they're struggling to tell the truth all the time. And what happens to them when they tell the truth and they stay in their frocks? In other words, they stay in the social political structure. They actually are killed for telling the truth. You know, Amelia tells the truth that she gave the hanky to her husband, Iago, and the next thing that happens to her is she's killed. If they disguise themselves as men, if they live underground, they not only can have their voices, but all their, all their sanity can come forward and they can organize everybody. And you would think out of that that then Shakespeare would say, okay, we'll jump to the late plays now because that's where women's wisdom comes forth, but he doesn't. He starts doing with 
Volumnia and Lady Macbeth and the two oldest daughters in Leah, he starts giving them men's attributes, if I can put it like that. They want the top job. They want to dominate other people. And what happens to the society when they do that is fascism. It just falls apart. We just get unending violence. And so I think by going on that journey with giving women men's voices, I'm saying this very crudely now, but by giving Volumnia the dominant voice in, in Coriolanus, what we see is you get Rome is going to be burnt to the ground in the end. It's self-slaughter. And, um, and I think that led him to the late plays and all the points that Darko was making about, especially Winter's Tale. Winter's Tale is so incredibly powerful as far as, you know, Hermione as grace, but Paulina as the witch who can actually change things, make what is, what, what is stone come back into life again. And then you get um, uh, Perdita, who's the daughter grown up in nature, as indeed is Miranda, as indeed not to a lesser degree is Marina. Marina gets put in brothels and she converts people all the time. But you get these young women who are going to stand strong and in a way they are lesser portraits of a Juliet. And so, and so out of these three things, you know, the witch or the aerial spirit that can transform things, out of that, you start seeing him aligning both the creative and the feminine. And that starts generating a new way of looking at life. And I do think that that's where Shakespeare came out in the end, is that we have to find a new way of, of, of generating. And it's up to the artists and it's up to the women to do it. So, you know, I, I feel as if he deeply understood women, and it began really with Juliet. Maybe Margaret, through all the war plays, he, he, um, he developed with Margaret, but it's Juliet as his big, you know, standalone, this woman I, I inhabit, and I can see all the things that she can be. All right, yeah. we're going we're gonna to have to stop it there with Tina Packer and with uh, Humphrey Tonkin and with Darko Treznik. To be continued. So uh, Tina has invited us uh, to come up in July. Uh, uh, please do. Uh, and, I would be so thrilled. And we'll all have a big conversation about the Merchant of Venice and all kinds of other things as well. This has been a lot of fun. Humphrey Tonkin, by the way, will be at Hartford Stage on Sunday. So go to the matinee and then uh, have a chat uh, with Humphrey. Darko Treznik will be on, around Hartford Stage a lot uh, as he directs Romeo and Juliet. And as we say, Tina Packer. Her book is Women of Will, Following the Feminine in Shakespeare's Plays. Thanks to Jonathan McNichol and to Kion Wolf, and we'll be back with the nose tomorrow. Oh, Romeo. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? I'm here. Do you have a moment to talk about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I have a cell phone call from my daddy. Hi, daddy. Cell phones haven't been invented yet, ma'am. The signal in Verona is just the worst, you know. Daddy, can you hear me now?